Many people from gospel families today in this moment in American culture increasingly view the gospel like I viewed my church building when I was growing up. You see, the last two places that the city I grew up in, Springfield, Ohio, the last two places to have sewer lines be put into the neighborhoods so that indoor plumbing could take place in the homes was one, an Appalachian conclave where my dad grew up, and two, the other iconic Appalachian conclave in my city where the church was that I grew up in. So when you rolled up to my little country church, out the back there were two facilities. I mean, we were advanced. We had one for the boys and one for the girls. But it had a deleterious effect on my yearning to invite people to come to church. You know, I felt when I thought of that circumstance, I felt a sense of shame. It's like, you know, I mean, what, what if the guy comes and, you know, he has to use the bathroom? Mounts, where's the bathroom? Well, you go out the back door, you turn left, you walk down the sidewalk, out the back path, and go to the right. Don't go to the left. Go to the right in that white building. That's you. I mean, it ga- especially in the winter months, it gave new meaning to leaving someone out in the cold, did it not? I was a bit ashamed. Now, I began with that illustration playfully, although I did experience a measure of shame to argue that there are those today who look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they look not too differently than I looked at my home church and what was there. We now live in a day and age when gospel people are marked out for ridicule. And we are a little ashamed. Ashamed Being ashamed of the gospel is now a thing and an issue that we have to deal with. This article is now almost 10 years old. Psychology Today, 2013. A lead article's title, Why Are Religious People, in parenthesis, generally less intelligent? Notice the premise that the author is working in the article. By the way, how ought gospel people think about the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ? What is the right disposition that we should have toward this good news about Jesus? Let's allow the Bible, the Word of God, to frame our understanding, to frame our disposition. Position. Come with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. What's glorious about these two verses that end the Apostle Paul's introduction to this iconic deposit in the library of Scripture? What's fascinating about this description is the whole book, the burden of what he's going to communicate, it's right here. So, if you are going to spend the next... Uh, year and three quarters as we go through the book of Romans, working on your grocery list, or, you know, Eric, I find it difficult to listen. If you'll just listen this morning, you'll get the whole thing. 
It's all here. You can go off to the land of Nod the rest of the, the, the time, but the whole book is here. A summary is right here. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Hear the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to go two different directions. First, I want to argue that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. And secondly, I want to explain from the text three reasons why we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. Note it with me as we look at these verses. First, we don't ever have to be ashamed of the gospel. Now we read, for, or Jay read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That word foolishness is a fascinating word from which we get the English word moron. Now, we don't use that too much anymore. In a former generation, that was an insult to call someone a moron. That word, the preaching of the cross to those who are perishing, is foolishness. Literally, if you would just take the Greek letters and make them English, it starts out M-O-R-O-N, moron. It's moronish to them. The preaching of the cross doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. We live in a day where the gospel is ridiculed. See, Eric, what, what are you talking about, the gospel? I mean, what, what is the gospel? Here's Paul explaining the gospel. Now, I would remind you, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Hear the word of the Lord. The gospel is defined by the scripture. The good news is about Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptural record. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. That is good news. We don't ever have to be ashamed of God's gospel. Remember, we stopped and belabored what is said in Romans 1.1. This message belongs to God. Have you ever received a message from someone that you ascribed importance to? Uh, somebody you felt like was important and you got a letter from them or received a message from them. You valued the message because of your regard for who sent the message. This is God's message to us. 
This is not Paul's message. This is not Peter's message. This is God's gospel. And he sent it to us. It's good news for us. It's good news to us. It's good news about Jesus. And we need not be ashamed. Let's join the Apostle Paul in not being embarrassed about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul says. Now let's note two assertions about shame and the gospel. First, Jesus knew that shame would be a threat for his followers. Jesus is realistic. Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Why did he say that? Because he knew that the ridicule that he had faced, we would face in following him. And this is why we ought not be astonished or surprised at the ridicule that comes. And we are marching forward into a post-Christian age. So the levels of ridicule are kind of amping up. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of them. Jesus knew the threat of shame. Take the Apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.8. Do not be ashamed, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Timothy, let me tell you something. Don't be ashamed of this testament. Why would he tell him that? God often frames imperative imperatives, r- commands right on the spot of our conscience where we need it, we would face temptation to be ashamed. Paul further says in 2 Timothy 1.12 again, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted. So one question this message asks us, one question Romans 1.16 asks us, as it puts its arm around us this morning and gets next to our heart, is simply this. It's pretty straightforward. Are we ashamed of the gospel. Now remember, he's finishing his introduction. He's already said, we have an obligation to share this good news. And he says, I am eager to discharge my obligation. I'm eager to share this news. I can't wait to get to Rome and bear some fruit in sharing this good news. And then he says, for, the reason why are you eager you have why are you eager to discharge this obligation paul for i am not ashamed of the gospel now the second thing we second assertion we need to make in associating shame with the gospel that some do at life's end no one will be embarrassed by the gospel three times in the new testament the office of the new testament quote isaiah 28:16 It says this, the one who trusts will never be dismayed or disappointed. Three separate times, the authors of the New Testament come back to that, arguing that faith in the gospel is worth it and is going to pan out. It's going to be vindicated with our sight and the realization of our hope. That fuel will keep us being persevering. Now, when I'm abroad, um, I look like an idiot. And you might say, well, Eric, you, you do that well in America too. But when I'm in, abroad, I, put, I wear a fanny pack. And the reason I wear a fanny pack, and you just look shamefully stupid in a fanny pack, but the reason I wear it is because all of my valuables are right there. And I can see it. And if you're going to try to get them off my person, you're going to do it right in front of me and reach right for my belt. And I've never lost anything. <laughs> 
had a buddy on the subway in Barcelona, and I've traveled with him abroad before, and uh, he was lumbering out of the subway, the door opened, and a sleuthy guy reached right into his pocket, grabbed his documents, pulled them right out. He lost his money. He lost his passport, I think. He lost all his credit cards. He lost all of his identification. And he was standing on that platform in Barcelona, Spain, after the train had left, saying to himself, what in the world am I going to do? Now, at that time, you know what he was yearning for? Was that stupid-looking fanny pack. <laughs> and I think he even mocked me on a trip that I was on with him. But I'll tell you, in that moment, when it was all over, he wished to have had a fanny pack. Now, who cares about a fanny pack and looking stupid in pictures abroad? But I want you to know, everyone who has embraced the good news about Jesus Christ, when it is all over and the shouting match is over and the vindication of the people of God is brought forth, nobody is going to experience any shame in the gospel. They're going to say, the most glorious thing I ever did was receive that fanny pack gift from my Lord and strap it on with all of its glory and live with courage and grace and hope for all my days. Someday our faith will become sight. You talk about a glorious day of vindication. I promise in that day, and that's the phrase Paul uses for the end of the ages, that day. Read the pastoral epistles. I'm looking forward to that day. That day uses those two words. When that day comes, everyone who has received Jesus Christ as his Savior will never be more thrilled at the gospel than on that great day. And that day is coming. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you received him? We don't ever have to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, why ought we not be ashamed? All right, okay, you've, you've said the assertion, Eric, we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Give me some reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Eric? Well, let's note three in these verses. Why ought we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, we love the words in the text. And while I may love words a wee bit more than you do, um, the words in the text are very, very important. Their order is important. Their grammar is important. Uh, how they relate to each other is important. So, the word it is important. It's in verse 16. It. It's in verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It. What it? The it is an antecedent going back to the gospel. For in the gospel, the power of God for salvation is for everyone who believes. Verse 17. For in it. What it? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That structural marker in two places, it verse 16, it, verse 17, maps out a little bit about where we're going. Three reasons why we ought not be ashamed of the gospel. Reason number one, because the power of the gospel can change a person's life. 
Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, for the reason why I'm eager to discharge my obligation in sharing the gospel in Rome, and I can't wait to get there, is because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's because the power of God can change a person's life. The word power here is a fascinating word in the original. It's from which we get our English word dynamic. Our English word dynamite. Powerful to bring change. What is the dynamic at work in the church of Jesus Christ? It's the gospel. The power of God released in the gospel to transform a person's life. Power for what? Power for life change. Power to transform a life. E.J. Carnell, a theologian in a former generation in California, in the Bay Area, was on campus at University of San Francisco debating an atheist. Again, a generation ago. And in the middle of the debate, the atheist ran after with ridicule the assertions that Carnell was making about the gospel and about Jesus Christ and about the life-giving offer of forgiveness and grace and hope. And he was castigating him for believing something foolish and everybody there listening actually thought he was scoring some good points and that Carnell was losing the debate back. When it was Carnell's time to speak, he came to the lectern and he said, what man or woman or child's life has ever been transformed by the central ideas that there is no God? How has that ever helped anyone with life? And he began to tick off person after person a despairing person who had lost hope, who heard of Jesus and eternal life, and their life was powerfully changed. And he told another story about a person tied up in a terrible knot of consequence because of their sin and they had broken the law of God. And in a pile of guilt and a sense of shame for their behavior, and what they felt like had ruined their life and there was no future. He talked about how that person came to know Jesus Christ and had the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse them of their sin. And in confession and repentance, they had been brought out of that immovable pile of guilt and shame and life paralysis into the vitality of being someone who had been forgiven by God and made clean through Jesus Christ and were brought into a future and a hope. Somebody grieving and debilitated with the threat of death and a horrible disease took flight with vitality and hope, realizing that Jesus Christ promises us eternal life and death is not and does not get the last word. And as Carnell ticked off those points, those in the crowd began to say, hmm, he's on to something. Maybe this good news about Jesus does have an effect upon how we live. 
upon who we are. The Apostle Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. The old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Many in this room can attest that if it weren't for Jesus, they don't know where they'd be. And I would be at the front of the line. God rescued me from a headlong pursuit of indulgence and self-worship and humbled me to recognize that my greatest need was Jesus Christ. The benefits of his death, the glories of his life applied to me, the hope of his resurrection that I could carry around in this old broken world. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Has God ever changed your life through the gospel? Notice who the gospel is for. It's for everyone. For I'm I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. The gospel is for the Jew. The gospel is for the Greek. The gospel is for the rich. The gospel is for the poor. The gospel is for everyone, and it's God's invitation to humble ourselves and recognize what's true about us. We're sinful and separated from him, and humble ourselves to recognize what's true about him, that God couldn't love us more and is pursuing us in Jesus Christ our Lord. What news this is. What news. But notice, this is an exclusive message that Paul fences off here as well, because While the invitation is to everyone, the benefit comes to only those who believe. And remember chapter 1, verse 5, it's the obedience of faith. This is not a token, oh yeah, I believe. It's a yieldedness of our life and our will and our conscience and our heart to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the lingering question is yet, Do you believe the gospel? Have you given your life to him? Now, the second reason why we are not to be ashamed is because in believing in the gospel, we are gifted a righteous standing before a holy God. Look at verse 17. In it, what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. In the gospel, we come to see the kind of righteousness that God requires. This gets to the heart of the book of Romans. This opens up an understanding of the book. Now, if you are assigned a task to go match an off-white color by looking at a color palette at a hardware store, immediately resign from that assigned task. Men, I must warn you ahead of time, it is a trap. Do you realize how many different shades of white exist in the world? You say, hey, I want an off-white. And they roll out the portfolio and they keep unfolding and unfolding. And there's a bajillion different shades of off-white. We are at the glorious time of progress. We're doing some painting in the Student Activity Center. And it is an off-white shade called cloud white. Cloud white, that's what it is. And that's distinguished from the other shades. 
By the way, if we need some more paint, you know what we need? We need that off-white. Cloud white. Not another off-white is acceptable. That off-white. You see, in the gospel, there is revealed the kind of righteousness that makes us acceptable before God. And it's God's righteousness only revealed in the gospel. And that in believing the gospel, that kind, that sort, that only kind acceptable, God's righteousness is revealed to us and gifted to us as we believe in him. My new favorite thing to go to is a gender reveal party. Because it flies in the face of crazy, non-reality ideas our culture is harboring about gender. But also, they're fun. It's a great party. You go, and you know what? Nobody but those dirty saps who won't tell knows what the sex of this expected child is. But there's, there's a few that know. And they've bought some canister and they're going to uncork that canister. There's all kinds of ways that this goes down. But, um, you know, it, it's going to either explode. Blue! Aha! It's going to be a little boy. Or it's going to explode. Pink! Aha! It's going to be a little girl. You go, you don't know the gender. You leave, the gender is revealed. Why? Well, it's a gender reveal party. Come on, that's its purpose. We're disclosing it. It's revealed in the event, in embracing the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. And it gets better. It's not only revealed, we come to understand it. Remember, this is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, John 16. When he comes, he'll help you understand the true nature of righteousness. He'll help you understand the true nature of coming judgment. There was a season in my life as a little boy growing up and headed toward and through adolescence that I thought, you know, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I hang out at church and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I try once in a while to obey my mom and dad. And uh, I, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm fine before God. And then the Spirit of God brought me to the gospel. And when the Spirit of God brought me to the gospel, I realized that I did not have the acceptable righteousness to be found acceptable to God because my self-righteousness wasn't cloud white on the off-color palette. It wasn't going to make the grade. But that not only in the gospel is the acceptable righteousness revealed, God's, what you realize is God's willing to give you that acceptable righteousness. Now, when we think of righteousness, we think of right living, we're all about behavior, something that you do. The concept Paul's talking about and how the Greek mind thought of it, you remember the Greek mind overtook the Roman world. They built all the roads, but they were still using all the Greek thoughts. So the language of the New Testament written in Greek, this notion of righteousness, it actually comes out of the law. It's not about right living in the sense of how you live. It's about a status. Oh, if you can stand it, the $6 concept is the forensic righteousness. That is how the law views your status 
before what is right. So that you could be acquitted and found not guilty because you had achieved the standards. You were given a forensic. You were given a righteous status, a declaration as such. I had a buddy who for years wore a Major League Baseball championship ring from the World Series. I remember it maybe wrongly, and the good Daryl would know uh, when the A's beat the Reds, what, 73, 74, whatever, in those years, 72. You know, they won the world championship. So my buddy was friends of Charlie O'Finley. I've told you a little bit about that before. And so after the Oakland A's won the world championship, why, uh, my buddy started wearing a championship ring. And if you would see him, you'd say, let me see that ring. I mean, this big honking gold piece with these gyms. Oakland Athletics, world champions. Daryl just identified it's 1972. And, you know, he'd wear that ring. And you look at him and say, man, you were on that team. Because he had the ring. And isn't that a symbol of the championship? And a part of the honor of being a part of that organization. And a part of that effort. You know what? He wasn't a part of the Oakland A's. He was a pastor in the area who knew the owner. And the owner gifted him a status of wearing that around, and he wore it around for 40 years, man. He was so proud of that thing. And he was great. Uh, and when you see it, you know, say, how did you get that? He'd say, I was gifted that by the owner. You see, that's the glory of the gospel. It not only reveals this is what you need, but it offers graciously to give us the very thing that we need, this status before God. It was as if my buddy was on the Oakland Athletics team and won the World Series. He wasn't. He was gifted the ring. In the same way, you and I can stand before a holy God who is pure and without sin and be found acceptable. Now, you know your heart. I know mine. How could that be without a gifting of a status that's outside of ourselves that is revealed in the gospel? That's the book of Romans. That's the glory of the gospel. Why wouldn't I be ashamed? Because this very message gives me a status that makes me acceptable before a God who is holy and right and good altogether. And then I don't spend the rest of my days trying to think about whether or not I'm assured of my salvation because it never depended upon my ability to do anything. It was all about that gifting that I got that was revealed in the gospel. What? Be ashamed of that message? Are you kidding? I'm going to glory in that message. Yes, that is amazing grace. In the gospel, we are gifted the extraordinary, a righteous standing in Christ. Finally, the third reason why we are not to be ashamed is because real living begins when we are declared righteous in believing the gospel. Real living begins when we are declared righteous in believing the gospel. Notice how the last sentence is about real living. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This stuff is for living. It's not for Sunday. It's for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. He quotes the book of Habakkuk. The just, the one declared righteous, the one gifted this status. He will live, she will live, they will live by faith. Now, you've heard the English phrase, oh, I'll tell you what, you haven't lived till you've uh, 
been next to the dam in the Gully River in West Virginia when they let the dam out and you get on the rapids that are the craziest rapids in the world and people come from Europe to do You haven't lived until you've been on the Gully River when they let the water out of the dam. Or you haven't lived until you hike through the Grand Canyon or you haven't lived until you bike through Moab or you haven't lived until you turn your ATV vehicle upside down in Moab going across the rocks. You haven't lived. You've heard that phrase, you haven't lived. The Apostle Paul is saying, you don't know what it is to live until you've embraced the glory of the gospel. You've seen people debilitated with depression and discouragement. <laughs> I said to you, you call this living? Paul said, let me frame the living for you. When we are made right with God with the gift of righteousness, we really live. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life that you might really live. John 10, 10. This is a summary of the whole book of Romans. In exposure to the promise of the gospel, I discover something about myself. I'm a sinner estranged from a holy God. My off-white color won't work. But in the gospel, God is willing to give me his righteousness. In fact, it's revealed in the gospel. In the gospel, I discover something about God. In the good news announcement, God offers a status of being declared righteous before him as a gift. What I need, he exposes me to in the gospel and then is willing to give me the very thing that I need. We don't have the right stuff. But God is willing to give us in the promise of the gospel everything that we need. And so it begs the question, have you received in the good news the precious gift of eternal salvation? You say, oh, Eric, I did that in 72. Well, how comes you're struggling with assurance if it's not based upon you, but based upon him? Oh, Eric, well, I'm not struggling with assurance. Well, how come you're struggling with the development of holiness because this gifting of righteousness is not a free license to sin, but it's a cure for a will that formerly loved sinning? Oh, may God use the gospel as we preach it to ourselves again this morning to make us into the people that he wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we'd be headed for hell if it wasn't for Jesus. Deservingly. Be totally disinterested in you unless you had revealed to us the glory of your gospel. Thank you. Now, Lord, hear our hearts this morning. Those who need to be called away from shame, the ridicule of our culture is starting us, leading us to put our heads down, to withdraw. Oh God, help us stay engaged joyfully, standing up for the one who stood up for us, put his hands out, and was crucified so that we could come to have eternal life. Father, for any soul here this morning, 
who in their honest moment would say, who's kidding whom? I've never embraced the gospel. I'm a sinner separated from God. Bring them in, Lord. Save them. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. Hear us as we pray. Help us be a church not ashamed, but a church not only willing to share, happy to share good news with others. Thank you for the Alpha Class effort this week. Latonia Terrace with the Good News Club. Father, help the text of the book of Romans shape our hearts. Help us wear proudly the signet ring of the gift of your righteousness that you've given. We didn't deserve it. We can wear it because of your grace. We love you. Make us a gospel people here at Calvary. Amen. Amen.